Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Unless your business or organisation is here to solve some kind of a problem or a challenge, actually you really need to think carefully about your purpose and how purpose and mission driven you are. It's the ability to sort of link up and create networks is, is where you're going to bring added benefit. But the leadership thing is key. The other really interesting place to be is in community energy. Full disclosure, I did that in my local community and it was both really stressful and really great at the same time. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt and Becky. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about low carbon infrastructure. And when we're talking about infrastructure, it's actually much more than you might initially think. It's the bridges, roads, docks, hospitals, railways, water supply, telephone networks, power stations, all of these things that deliver the services that we rely on for our economy and our society to function properly. Transforming and decarbonising our critical infrastructure won't be easy. Neither will it be cheap or without major disruption. It will entail costly and long-term projects which can't simply happen overnight. So how do we make sure it's low and not high carbon infrastructure that's in the pipeline? Today we talk with Alan Hendry, Director of Sustainability at Mock McDonald, to discuss their latest report commissioned by the Institute of Civil Engineers. Titled Accelerating the Decarbonisation of Scottish Infrastructure, it looks at the challenge ahead, what's holding us back and what we can do to decarbonise our infrastructure. We're also joined by Sarah Tiam, Chief Executive of the Scottish Council for Development and Industry, as well as Kit England, the Green Economy Manager at Glasgow City Council. And as always, please do reach out to us on our dedicated Twitter handle. If you haven't already, go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod and get involved in the discussions there. Or if you're like me and can't constrain your thoughts to just a few characters in a tweet, do email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share those longer thoughts. Right, so before we get into our discussion today, Matt, we've got the good, the bad and the weird, yep. except there's no bad news today. That's the rule? Yeah, quite right. We've banned bad news. Why? Because we've reached saturation point. I can't digest any more. 
So yeah, it's just a sort of ban for a few minutes on bad news. So what's been making you smile over the last couple of weeks, Matt? Okay, so this week I've been looking into a company called Ripple Energy. I've been aware of Ripple Energy for a little while now, but how are these guys any different from the energy supplies that we're all familiar with that have been making the news of late? Well, firstly, they've got a great name. They've got a great name. Okay, and that's it. No, that isn't it. <laughs> they, they have a great business model, in my view. So they basically give you the opportunity of buying a share in a wind farm. Okay. So recently, they broke ground on building an eight wind turbine wind farm in Kirkhill in Scotland, and it's enough to power 20,000 homes. Okay. So that isn't massively innovative, I guess, because community energy does that. The way this is different is it ties this to your energy bill. So they've got a select number of chosen suppliers that you can partner with. So it works like this. You make an investment. For me, they calculated be about £2,000 to account for 100% of my electricity needs. And I am buying power directly through the supplier from this wind farm instead of at the volatile price, market price of power. And the difference between that baseline, that cost price from the wind farm and the crazy, crazy gas inflated market price of power, the difference between those two prices savings on my energy bill. Okay. Now, if I invested £2,000 roughly into this, I would get at the moment, wait for it, Becky, mm-hmm. £520 a year saving on my electricity bill. Wow. I would pay back my investment within four years. And after that, for the next 21 years, I'd be enjoying £520 saving on my electricity bill. So the wind's only blowing some of the time. So does this mean that you can only use electricity when that wind farm is generating? Or can you use electricity in your home at any time and some sort of magic happens behind the scenes? I realise it's not magic, but it feels like magic to me um, to kind of account for all of that. I guess that's factored into it. Obviously, I can't buy power from this wind farm when it's the wind isn't blowing, hence why they're coupling you with an energy supplier. And I'm assuming it kind of averages out over the year of um, sometimes my portion of that wind farm would be generating more than 100% of my needs, but sometimes it would be under 100% of my needs and it would balance out over the year. But that's a question for Ripple, and I'd love to get them on to talk more about this. And I should say the payback of four years... That's at current prices. If prices drop to where they originally were before things got weird and the crisis really started to bite, they were looking at much more like a 13-year payback, okay? So I just think it's a different way of thinking about it. Buy a bit of a share in a wind farm, buy the power from that and enjoy the savings from that and those savings pay back your investment and then after you've paid your investment off, you've got a long-term saving. I appreciate it. Not everybody will be able to afford this, but some people will, and some people might find that interesting. But yeah, it's a very different way of thinking about it and very different way, Becky, than say putting solar on your roof, right? Why not buy a share in a in a wind farm? And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a community organization doing it. It can be something... Um, much more akin to to Ripple, which is a different different way of approaching this. Yeah, but it's supporting that collective action. It's supporting the economies of scale. And of course, if you move, presumably you can carry the deal with you, whereas you can't take your, uh, your solar panels off your roof with you. No, no, can't carry your roof with you. And now, Becky, we're on to a little bit of trivia, something entirely different. Another good news story. But the question to you is what proportion of sales of fast food and coffee. So fast food restaurants, you McDonald's, Burger King's, also your coffee shops like you know Starbucks and Costa. What proportion? 
was through drive-through sites in the year up to March 2021. COVID would have been rife for a lot of that where we wouldn't have even been able to go in. So I'm guessing numbers will be a bit inflated compared to perhaps usual years. So, I mean, maybe 40%? Much lower, 12%. 12, all right. But in the years between 2015 and 2022, our sales increased by 40%, okay? Wow. Now, I just want to say, versus the US, what number oh, no. in the US, what share of sales of fast food, coffee and all the rest, do you think are roughly through drive through So if it's 12% in the UK, what is it in the US? So I reckon in the US it would be a bit higher, so maybe 18%? 70%. Oh! <gasps> No. 70%. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 according to the, the source I've got in front of me. And I think we need to, I tried to fact check this earlier, but the these 70%, which is insane, right? The number of drive-throughs in the UK is going up and up and up, just at the time when we're trying to drive carbon emissions down and down and down. In Glasgow alone, mm-hmm. there are currently 48 drive-through restaurants, 48. Wow. Now, the good news, we're getting to the good news, don't worry. Okay, okay. The good news article <laughs> is that the, the Green Party for the Glasgow City Council tabled a motion to basically ban drive-throughs, uh, new drive-throughs. Wow. And it looks like this is starting to gain traction and uh, the motion was carried. So whilst it remains to be seen how this will kind of filter through into actual you know, rules and regs, it looks like drive-throughs could be a thing of the past. I have to say the responses on Twitter were pretty divided. As you can imagine in this day and age, there wasn't really much centre ground around this. It was either this is the best thing that's ever happened or the worst, but either way, it's it's an, it's an important development. And I guess, it, but you do spend a lot of time idling in your car. That's it. And idling is bad because air pollution, mm-hmm. greenhouse gas emissions, apparently it's really bad for your engine as well. And there's an interesting article from The Conversation on this exact issue, which we'll try and link into the website. But anyway, that's my good news article. Hopefully that will then pressure council and government to look at other ways of accessing our food outlets other than climbing in your car. I'll share my good news. And I was toying with whether it was whether it fits as a good news story or as a weird, and I think it kind of fit as both. Regular listeners to the pod will have heard me talk before about the octopus energy trial in the UK that's going on that yeah. I'm taking part in. Last time we talked about this, I outlined that I had not been successful in reducing my demand. So I got I got an email from Octopus Energy asking me to reduce yeah. my demand by 40% between 4.30 and 6.30 p.m. Uh, can, and can I guess? Can I have a guess at how, how far you got? So you tried to do it by 40% between what hours? 4.30 and 6.30 p.m. So the first time I was unsuccessful. The target was 40%. And actually, I should say it wasn't energy, it was electricity only. So it wasn't monitoring okay. our gas use. So between 4.30, 6.30 in the afternoon, evening, uh, 40%. I'm going to go for 50, 50%. We reduced our power by 83%. My goodness. What What 83%. did you do? <laughs> did you just not I, have I dinner? Don't know why, I don't know why it worked so well that week. Just <laughs> went to bed. <laughs> Honestly, oh, I cooked my kids dinner. Like we, we still all ate. I didn't send them hungry to bed. I promise. I promise they did not go hungry to bed. However... I got the email in congratulating me for doing that. And as part of that email, I was also told how much money I would had saved and would be credited. And how much do you reckon it was? Well, I don't know the exact number, but I've seen some folk put this up on Twitter. And it's, oh, yeah. I want to say, fairly small, yeah. arguably a paltry amount, but it would maybe be like, I'm going to go 25 pence. <laughs> 20 pence. 20 pence. <laughs> and it was... For- it was- <laughs> 
so bizarre, Matt, because I saw the email and I'm scrolling down and I see the 83% and in my mind I'm going, yes, we did it. Yeah. This is amazing. Go off. £20 then, reward, easy. And then I read the monetary value and I started thinking, is that worth it? Like, you know, yeah. we went to quite a lot of trouble. Like, will I even bother next time? And I was actually talking about this with uh, one of my colleagues who uh, who's based in the US and she runs a behavioral science research institute there. And she told me that Actually, this is a well-known psychological theory. And one of our mutual friends um, and colleagues, Hal Forster, has written about this. And it's called decision modes. Mm. And so what, what had happened was that I had been in this kind of way of thinking of trying to do something for the greater good. You know, it was a challenge. It was very kind of internally motivating and, and driven by this, you know, can I contribute one of rule? And the very mention of the, you know, the monetary saving put me into a completely different decision mode and starts to to flip the way in which you think about and make decisions. I have a question. If they hadn't have mentioned the money, mm-hmm. do you think you'd have felt better about it? If, they, if they'd have kept the 20 pence, yes. would you have even questioned it? You'd have just been a challenge, right? And I would have been so excited that we'd succeeded and contributed mm. towards this program that's trying to reduce the amount of power that's used when the grid is dirtiest. The minute that that money was mentioned, it's got me questioning why I'm participating. So what you're saying is it was an offensive amount of reward, basically. The very notion of the the monetary equivalent changes you from this sort of thinking about how you're contributing to some bigger cause to putting you in a mindset of what I can save and and how that kind of financial aspects are traded off. So, um, yeah, counterintuitive, but I I think I would have been more excited and, and I would be feeling more positive about engaging again if there had been no mention of money whatsoever. Now, I think you said before we you shared that story that that was your good news story, but it sounded like it was your weird news story. Is that yeah, so, a bit of both? So it's, that's it. It's good because I'm excited that we managed to, to do it. And it's, yeah. so it's, yeah, good good, for, good for me Could I contributed. But that's why I think there's the weird element too. Well, you know, and, and it, it segues nicely into my the kind of final story I think we have, and a bit of a weird one I have, which is the demand reduction. You managed to achieve 83% in that evening, okay? One of the big focus for is tackling what's happening in Ukraine with the Russian invasion and the implications this is having for gas and oil prices is energy demand management, energy demand reduction. Now, akin to what happened in Japan post-Fukushima, where many of their nuclear reactors were were out and they had to dramatically reduce their energy demand almost overnight, we're going to have to do something similar in the UK and more broadly across Europe. Now, the weird bit for me here is a lot of the commentary I've been hearing about this is whether what's happening in Ukraine, which is appalling in sort of a humanitarian sense and Obviously, this show isn't about, isn't going to cover that off, but just to note what's happening there, and that's appalling. But the implications of that could also be appalling in terms of access to energy and the cost of energy and the macroeconomic impacts. So what does this do for net zero? And much of the commentary I'm hearing is, well, we need to drill, 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 baby, drill. You know, it's more oil and gas and that kind of delaying net zero. And on the other hand, there's the emphasis, well, Fossil fuels are the problem in the first place. We need to move away from oil and gas. Gas is a bridging or transitional fuel. You know, its days are over. So it's just the weird bit here is, is it going to mean that we double down on net zero or delay net zero? And I don't have the answer yet. And of course, what I'm not seeing as much of is conversation around what's happening on our demand side and looking at activities that are independent of the supply. So if we can make our 
buildings more energy efficient, if we can rely on more efficient and effective forms of heating and transport. You know, these are ways that we can overcome some of our reliance on this. And if you've got renewables, it goes hand in hand with doubling down. But you could be doing that without sort of doubling down on the renewables as well. But I just don't see anywhere near the sort of um, conversation around around actually investing in our low carbon infrastructure, in the infrastructure that's going to drive this low carbon future. And that is the point at which we really should bring our guests in who are going to give us some of the answers. So bring them in. So, hi, I'm uh, Alan Hendry, and I lead on sustainability for Mott MacDonald in Scotland, Ireland, and Northern Ireland. Hi, my name's Sarah Tom, and I'm the Chief Exec at SCDI, the Scottish Council for Development and Industry. Hi there, I'm Kit England. I'm the Green Economy Manager for Glasgow City Council, where I look at the needs and opportunities for the net zero transition for an economic perspective. The topic of discussion is all about low carbon infrastructure and how we ensure that we deliver a low carbon infrastructure in a timely and cost effective manner. So the first question I think to our guests is what on earth do you define as infrastructure and what do you include within that basket? And most importantly, what is low carbon infrastructure? So it's an open question. Maybe if we can begin with Alan, because Alan Mott MacDonald, which you represent, were commissioned to undertake the report Accelerating the Decarbonisation of Scottish Infrastructure, commissioned by the Institute of Civil Engineers. So you've done some heavy thinking on this. So maybe if you can tackle it first, then we'll, we'll hand over to Sarah and Kit. Sure. Thanks, Matt. So I guess uh, classify infrastructures is the, the stuff that gets us around or transport infrastructure. There's energy infrastructure, which lights, heats our homes. Uh, there's water infrastructure. There's digital infrastructure. So it's, it's across a whole um, gamut of, of types and uh, it's the things that make our life function. Those are, the I guess, the bits of kit, but we also look to issues around training, how you procure infrastructure, how you run infrastructure, how you decommission infrastructure. So it wasn't just the, the types of kit, it was the, the story around them about how you get them developed and how they're managed. And in terms of low carbon infrastructure, I would say is that the stuff that is, is designed to, to reduce the carbon intensity to help meet uh, Scotland's 2045 net zero ambitions. So my reading of what you've said and also the, of the report is low carbon infrastructure kind of falls into two categories. One, it's delivered in a low-carbon fashion, but also it enables and facilitates low-carbon behaviours, activities, and the like. Is that a, that crude definition fairly? fairly I, I would say that was fair. So if you, you know, if you look at some of the infrastructure that's going now into support energy, particularly with Scotland coming up and all the offshore wind, I would say that was um, low-carbon infrastructure in terms of what it'll deliver, but how it's actually constructed can also be low-carbon, depending on, on how you do it. i maybe turn to Sarah before Kit then. I, have you got a different take on what infrastructure is, what it does, and, and what constitutes low-carbon? I think Alan's absolutely spot on. I mean, the thing about infrastructure, it's a real enabler, isn't it? It's about our quality of life. So from the minute you get up in the morning and you turn on the tap and brush your teeth to how you get to work, or school, or how you get around to visit your family. It's everything. It's uh, water, transport, energy, waste, but also digital increasingly. And gosh, we really couldn't have done without that this last couple of years. Yeah. And I suppose the first observation I would make is that this is about making uh, the most of our existing assets. Scotland has very ambitious targets to get to net zero by 2045, but it's really worth making the observation that most of that infrastructure is already built. So a lot of what we need to do is 
looking after what we've got and making sure, extending its life and ensuring that it's fit for the future. But to add to Alan's points about infrastructure, you know, we're facing a, a, a twin crisis, aren't we? Yes, we have to get to net zero, uh, but it's also about a biodiversity and nature a crisis as well. So that is something uh, that we also need to be considering in, in all of this. And, and in terms of low-carbon infrastructure, sometimes it's taking out hard engineering and it's restoring our rivers and putting in natural flood uh, prevention. Uh, you can actually take that hard engineering out, if you like. And uh, I, li- I like that. The, the absence of infrastructure could be the lowest lowest carbon. Now, I can see Kit is... is... Turns out Mother Nature is quite good at this kind of stuff on its own, you know? As as, as Green Economy Manager, Kit, you're, you're, you're desperate to come in here, right? Yeah, so um, I'm just kind of... Uh, there's two things. One is I'm reminded of... I don't know if any of you listen to Pod Save America, which is this kind of American politics po- um, podcast, but they were talking about when Biden was putting in through his infrastructure bill and in the US, the debate about the kind of how broad do you go with the definition of infrastructure? It was like, are we infrastructure? You know, it's kind of, <laughs> it's a bit crazy. But I, I think there's, there's, there's two things. One is that I would echo sort of everything that Alan and Sarah said. I would, um, Sarah, I would build on it though and sort of say that we also need to think about green infrastructure. So kind of nature-based solutions, both for mitigation and for adaptation, I think are important. And then I think we also need to probably draw out a separate category of infrastructure around climate resilience as well. So, you know, things like flood risk management infrastructure um, and those kinds of things too. But broadly, yeah, absolutely kind of agree with that that kind of definition that we've 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 started with. Okay, I'm just gonna pick pick you up on that. So you said green infrastructure, and in my mind I'm thinking colour green, and I know that's not what you're talking about, but possibly other people say <laughs> No, that's kind of I kind of a bit what I'm talking about though, Becky, because I'm talking about things like green roofs, green walls, sustainable urban drainage systems swales and you know all those kinds of things that, that that Sarah was getting at as well I think so I'm definitely thinking about that it's a bit confusing in this space because some people talk about green infrastructure in the same way they talk about low carbon infrastructure as well so green as in it is low environmental impact but I was really talking about yeah you know and in in other parts of the world things like mangroves and that kind of stuff listen it's a great conversation and I think one of the things we did within the report was to highlight some good practice and given what Sarah said about you know making sure existing assets are used well, and given what Kit said about green infrastructure, one of the projects we highlighted is a is a really good example of both systems thinking and a place based approach was the Smart Canal in Glasgow, which is obviously a, a fairly historic asset. And the project originally was to look at how you use the canal to receive water from intensive rainfall periods. So again, it's the resilience thing. But that project has grown arms and legs. It's now about biodiversity. They've done it in a way that is low carbon. They've created a whole range of um, habitats and walking routes and cycling routes. So it's infrastructure that tackles a, a need around drainage, but it's done it in a way that has provided jobs, opportunities for local communities. It's just, to me, it's like, that's how it should be done. It's uh, it's not rocket science, but it's it's not done often enough. And it's simultaneously addressing a range of different priorities and opportunities. So actually, there's the piece there about regenerating an area as well and involving the local community and making it easier for them to make the right choices. You know, enabling them to walk and cycle, creating that really nice amenity and quality of life for, for people. So I definitely want to to dig into this a little bit further because that sounds like a, a very exciting opportunity. I guess, first of all, I'm wondering if you can just 
break that down for me as as to why that is an example of low carbon infrastructure. So what is it that isn't low carbon? What is high carbon? Or how do we have a lot of high carbon infrastructure that we just need to use in different ways? Um, Sarah, you said that we need to make the best use of the assets we already have. Is that still true if they're high carbon assets? And what is the scale of the challenge that we're trying to address? Well, and Becky, if I can just append on to that discussion that we had in the kick around prior to this, so we were talking about drive-throughs. Is that high carbon infrastructure because it encourages a high carbon behaviour? Who wants to go first on this? <laughs> I mean, I would just sort of say, I think that the, the Smart Canal in North Glasgow is a really great project because the legacy of that was was a high carbon infrastructure. But where we are now, Becky, it's an existing asset, you know, and it's being repurposed rather than spending money on the embodied carbon of new infrastructure for flooding management, you know, which is achieving the same outcomes. So, you know, as, as Sarah said, you know, it's a great project because it realises multiple economic outcomes, it, you know, social outcomes, it connects people into the city centre, it makes it easier to do, you know, low carbon transport, all those kind of things. The outcomes are low carbon, as well as the delivery of it are low carbon. I think that's the that's the key thing. I mean, yes, there's been bits of kit going in to monitor the water flows and to do all of the automatic drainage management, all that kind of stuff. But the core of it in terms of you haven't had to dig out a massive chunk of groundworks, you know, and, and lay a load of pipes or, you've, you know, and all of the embodied carbon that goes with that. That, for me, is at the core of that. What I love about it is it, it delivers multiple benefits. And I think infrastructure should always be challenged to deliver multiple benefits. And, and I guess, Becky, going back to your, so what's high carbon infrastructure? I guess maybe the obvious thing to say would probably be roads. But then there's an argument that if we do get the transition to electric vehicles and hydrogen trucks then to a certain extent that is ameliorated but yeah that that's maybe the kind of the, the other end of that spectrum but there is obviously opportunities for decarbonization there depending on on how they're used well and, and i like that example of, of roads because it's something that everyone can relate to and and for sure i can i can completely understand now why they are high high carbon especially if you've ever sat in a traffic jam and you just feel those fumes coming in the car but equally, you know, if we end up with a lifestyle that is far more based on public and active transport, I, I see what you're saying. It's not about replacing those roads. It's about using them in a different way to deliver different sorts of outcomes. So just stepping back to the um, the smart canal, why do you think it is that this project was able to deliver so many benefits and to be done in a way that supported these kind of multiple different goals. What what was different about this project compared to other projects? I, I would say, and, and again, it's, it's throughout the report. If you, all the examples we have produced that are good examples are down to individual leadership. It's somebody who's wanted to kind of just do a better job, and they've had that breadth of understanding about what they can deliver through their project. So they've, they've not got a siloed mind. They've got a mind that understands all the things they can deliver. It's almost something I'd probably challenge back to the, the universities, is that that's something that should be taught more about those wider benefits that can be delivered. Because in, in university, you maybe go down a silo to become a chemical engineer or a or something else. But it's the ability to sort of link up and create networks is, is where you're going to bring added benefit. But the leadership thing is key. We'll take Sarah, then we'll go to Kate, if that's okay. Leadership, Alan's quite right. Leadership is extremely important here. But I think it's also 
about routing the, the project has to be rooted in need. You're identifying a need. You're trying to solve an existing challenge and you're trying to resolve it in a better way. And I think, you know, it's it's what Alan is saying is about thinking about it in a much more systematic and wider way rather than just in the achievement of that narrow goal. You know, Kit touched on it earlier. Actually, the penny has really dropped for lots of organisations in the last couple of years, private sector and public and third sector, that actually it's about working towards those social and environmental outcomes alongside whatever else it is you're trying to do. That maybe if you're a business, you're thinking about your bottom line. But actually, unless your business or organisation is here to solve some kind of a problem or a challenge, actually, you really need to think carefully about your purpose and how purpose and mission driven you are. But it's that system thinking, that wider thinking and thinking about a problem much more holistically, thinking, oh, actually, we can we can solve a, a problem here around flooding, drainage and so on, but we can actually do good things for the community at the same time, create a great place make this a better place to be and have a better quality of life for people. So you're tackling multiple challenges and all sorts of ways in which communities and people can you know, not achieve their best. I would completely agree with that. I think that what I would say, though, I think is that why you see that as leadership at the moment is because the way that we design our institutions and the way that we train people is not to think in that of handling that systemic thinking and that complexity very well. So if you look at how public sector institutions are set up, and I'm not going to kind of pick on individual ones because that's not helpful, but if you if you think about that, over the last sort of 100 years or so, they've evolved to keep the status quo and they've evolved to deliver certain things over, you know, repetitively over a number of years. So local authorities, you have a service set up, it does your waste collection, etc., and it continues to do that in the same way. Where we're going now, we're actually facing multiple challenges and it's not just the climate challenge. You know, the Green Deal that we're trying to put together in, or that we are putting together in Glasgow is not just about the climate piece. It's about how do we deliver economic prosperity for people in the 21st century? It's how do we deal with inequality? And it requires you to think about those solutions that deliver those things together. But what institutions tend to do is, well, the economic development teams over here, the climate change team is over here. Poverty, we just deal with that over there, don't we? And we kind of, we accept failure demand and we have a sort of, you know, a government service which deals with with benefits payments and that kind of thing. Instead of thinking about those things together and training people and expecting people to work in that way. And what it means is it's very, very different because you have to start with a blank sheet of paper almost and kind of not have preconceptions about what the outcome might be because if you have a preconception about we're going to deliver this piece of infrastructure and that's the way that it's going to be done, it leaves no space for exploring those co-benefits or bringing others into the project. And I think the Smart Canal, just coming back to ground that in the real world, it took a very, very long time to get off the ground and it nearly failed at multiple points. And the reason it didn't is because the relevant officers from you know the city council flooding team, Scottish Water, Scottish Canals, kind of all persevered together. If we look at where we are and the trajectory of where we've got to go to be net zero by 2045 as a country and for Glasgow by 2030, we have to get away from that just being the exception rather than the rule. And we have to get to the point where we're hardwiring that into our institutions and things. 
and that's why place is such a useful lens through which to look at these types of challenges because actually, you know, every silo or every organisation has got something positive to bring to the challenge. You've got, we've all got something to bring to the party here. So if we're a consumer, it's about the choices we're making. Uh, you know, if you're a, a public policy professional thinking about poverty, you're not doing so in, in isolation in your box. And I think this is why built environment and regeneration professionals and engineers understand these challenges and are better equipped to deal with them. So following up on that point, following up on Kit's point, and also, Alan, in the, in the report, this is sort of writ large, systems thinking and place-based thinking. So these you know, two, two notions that we're, we're cross-sectoral, cross-vector. We're looking, we're not just looking at waste or water or energy. We're looking at infrastructure and, as Sarah said, to solve multiple problems to facilitate low-carbon choices that enrich people's lives. Right. How do we ingrain that systems thinking and that place-based thinking in decision-making from the top? That's industry, that's government, that's NGOs, citizens. How, what do we start to do? Because at the moment, we are very siloed. I mean, the examples you talk about are almost are the exception to the rule. So what do we do to start breaking down that siloed thinking, but also that that almost that lack of place-based thinking that we're just looking to replicate things from one place to the next rather than accept that sometimes places are slightly different and we need, we need to be aware of that. Well, if the last two years has taught us anything at all, it's the value of the public, private and voluntary sector coming together behind a shared goal, a shared mission. Look at the things that have been achieved in terms of where we are in terms of battle in a pandemic, the introduction of the vaccination, the different types of behaviours. You know, everybody has come together around a, a shared challenge. And so actually, I think the, the key thing, I mean, the, the organisation that I work for, the reason that I'm here is that it is an organisation that for 90 years has brought together those different constituent parts in the room to have grown-up conversations about where do we need to get to? What's the long-term vision? And what do we all have to bring to the party? And how can we make sure that we work together to make sure that we get there? So it's really that working across sectors, both in terms of uh, you know professional expertise, but also across public, private and third sector, and recognising that no single one has the answer. We've all got something to contribute there. I'm going to go to Alan next. Alan, obviously, you've written the report here. Some of the answers are in there, but what are they? One of my hobby horses, I think that people behave the way they're marked. And I think there's a real opportunity with the to say the national performance framework that Scottish government has set, which is, is very akin to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. If you're getting money to deliver something, you should be able to have a narrative around all those aspects of the national framework. So that's the social aspects, the economic aspects and the environmental ones. And I think in challenging people to basically create that story and respond to those demands, you start to get people to think a bit more in a systems way. The, the place thing is, is very prominent now. I mean, we're doing work with um, Scottish Futures Trust. and They brought out a piece of work around the importance of place. But I think place allows you to exploit the natural benefits, whether that's like human capital or physical capital of that place to create something that is that is joined up. And, and it almost implies you have to do systems thinking if you're basing it around a place. So Kit, you, you are basing this around a place. That place is Glasgow. And as I understand it, 
you're also the Glasgow city region as well. It's not just the city of Glasgow, but so so what does place-based and systems thinking mean to you? How do you apply that on a day-to-day? Oh, that's a big question. I think it means different things in different contexts. So I think I completely agree with both what Sarah and Alan have, have said. I think just building on it, what we have to do is find the way that that kind of, I suppose, we innovate and change the rules of the game that encourages those kinds of thinking and those approaches. So good example, yesterday we went through the committee with our draft economic strategy for the city. And in there, the economic strategy and for the regional economic strategy, it should be said as well, you know, the biggest challenges to the economy have been around productivity and inclusion, but also the climate emergency. And actually what we're saying in that strategy is that if we want economic prosperity, then we have to tackle mitigation and adaptation. You're not going to get economic prosperity unless you deal with mitigation and adaptation because you won't have a sustainable future in a planet that is on fire. Conceptually, we have to start baking that into our policies and strategies. But then there's also a point about We have to innovate in the way that our institutions and our processes work. So good example for that is that although I've been involved in economic development before, my last five to 10 years has been in sustainability, but I'm not in the sustainability team in the council, I'm in the economic development team. So they've taken sustainability people and put them into economic development roles. You know, I mean, you see that in Europe, right? The European Green Deal, you know, Ursula von der Leyen says climate action is Europe's new growth strategy. So you have to sort of see those things together. And then what you have to start to do, I think, is things like write it into the job descriptions. You know, we're in the process of setting up a green economy unit here in the in the council. And we are writing things like the just transition into a job description. And if it's in your job description, then actually you're going to get scrutinised on whether you are delivering those roles might be finance related, they might be skills and supply chain related. But, you know, we're actually coming at that to, to say, you know, your performance, your, your effectiveness will be evaluated. And I think that's a broader point, actually, which is that setting up a green economy unit is recognising that there's an economic development perspective to climate change. You know, the Paris Agreement is going to see over the next two or three years, and particularly driven actually by the UK government and the Greening Finance Roadmap, a massive reallocation of capital amongst the whole of the economy. You know, when, when the sustainability disclosure regulations kick in this year and all of the private sector with over 500 companies has to report how their business models are compatible with climate change, you know, you're really going to see the fox amongst the chickens there because, you know, you'll start to see, is my company that provides my broadband compatible with Paris? You know, and that that's a really, really big fundamental shift. So I think I'm going to, uh, Becky wants to come in, so I'm going to, I'm going to stop there. But I think well, no, I, I want to just push you further. Because one thing that I find very interesting, and you talked about some of the different departments, is particularly looking at the local authority, you know, in Glasgow, but in many places around the UK, local authorities are certainly leading the way with a lot of climate emergency action plans and local area energy planning. So really, really important group to look at. Do you find there are still challenges in that you still have these teams that focus on different things. So it's one thing to make sure that the people within the team bring the range of expertise and that these elements are written into their job descriptions. At the same time, if you're looking at solving an issue around broadband versus um, other forms of infrastructure versus, and you mentioned fuel poverty as a, you know, 
Are you finding new ways of working that's allowing you to bring together these different objectives across the teams? Because surely that's something that's also got to be part and parcel of this moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in quite early days around what the governance for this looks like. But I think one of the places that you can look for what that future looks like is the EU's missions. The European Commission has set out these five mission-based approaches for research and innovation. But what they try and do, and, and, you know, it's been advocated by the OECD and kind of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose at UCL, is that you set up these groups which are cross-sector, cross-actor, and with citizen involvement that work together on the governance of what that transition needs to look like. And that's really important because you need those multiple sets of interests to make sure that you've got the focus on the long term. In some ways, that citizen involvement in you know design and delivery of large-scale change programmes is incredibly important because the transformation is so big that you're only going to get a just transition and the social licence, to be fa- to be frank, to do this scale of transition if you have citizens in the room. But at the same time, you won't get that kind of level of action without large-scale corporates and business in the room as well as the same time as the local authorities. And I think there's another point, which is that the scale of the transition is so big that actually none of the institutions as they currently are, if you ever, if you ever decided to design a vehicle for that mission, you know, you wouldn't start with what you have now, you would start with something totally different. So there's a really big question for all of us to be looking at our own institutions and going, do we have the right structures, skills and capacities to deliver this? And this is a really, really good point. And it it sort of makes me think that, you know, we're moving towards a future where we have to do a much better job at talking to people that work in other departments, in other sectors, from other disciplines. And this is a very different skill set to what we typically train people. Typically, you know, whether you're looking at the university route or apprenticeship routes, we're training people to become more and more expert in a very, very siloed field. And is that something that needs to change? I mean, looking at um, looking at the Institute of Civil Engineers, like, does that need to change and evolve moving forward? Are you going to see a new breed of engineers coming through in the next 5, 10, 15 years? And do we need to, I guess, more, more of a point? My observation of that would be, and I'm not a member of IC, but uh, I would say when I look at my, particularly the younger cohort of colleagues in Mott McDonald, then you are getting different thinking coming through. They were part of the reason we actually won this commission with IC is that they were made a significant contribution to the report and they, they brought fresh thinking, uh, they brought enthusiasm, uh, they brought understanding and, and they brought zeal, dare I say. So it, it was really, for me, very enlightening that there was such talent, but such talent with intention. You know, they really wanted to get in about it. It wasn't just a job. They, were, they had a passion for it because, you know, our generation's maybe not done the best job in the world. So I hope they can do a better job than we have. But yeah, I was I was very impressed. So I think there will be fundamental change as we go forward. I think we're always going to need experts and, and specialists, Becky. And we, you know, we are, we need people that can grasp, you know, that real detail and get down to the to the nitty gritty. But actually, you're you're quite right in identifying that different skill set. And I think actually it's one that you see very often in leaders. And so I, I used to always say when I worked at the, the Institution of Civil Engineers, I mean, actually, I think. I think engineers are absolutely terrific because they're the type of people that come into the industry because they want to solve problems. They want to make the world a better place. 
but by their very nature, they are experts in a fairly narrow area quite often. But I used to always maintain that those engineers who perhaps were not the very bright, you know, the brightest and the best engineers or couldn't do the, you know, the calcs on the on the shard or actually the people that that had a, a, a basic grasp of their of their trade, but also had an ability to talk to people, to lead people. They were the ones, I used to always say, the, the ones that can talk and also build the bridge are they, they're either the business development director or they're the boss. Um, <laughs> uh, so so not everybody has those those combined skill sets. Some of us are good at being the glue that joins people together, but actually we don't have the skills and expertise. We don't have the technical expertise, but we know the right people to get in a room together. Okay, you've got a quick response then, and we've, we, we, we're fast running out of time, so... Yeah, I think just to kind of, again, build on what Alan and Sarah are saying, I think you need a, a diverse set of skills to make that happen. And, it, you know, sometimes you see some of those skills in one person and sometimes you need to build consortia. You know, we did a project last year writing the Glasgow City Region Adaptation Strategy, and that was done by a sustainability firm, a culture and arts firm, and a finance and economics consultancy firm. And it was the most interesting project I've ever been on because it was, you know, the Glasgow City Region Adaptation Strategy thinks about those broader levers of culture and finance, as well as doing the detailed technical piece on adaptation. And that's why I think it's been really successful. I think the only other thing that I would sort of say is that we also need to look at, there's probably layers to this, a bit like an onion. You know, we, we do need those experts about particular technical topics. We then need people who can do systems change and change management. And, you know, and that's difficult. And that needs facilitation skills. It needs systems thinking, etc. I also think we also need to be aware of where some of the more revolutionary types of thinking needs to come in. And that's at the margins. And if you look at some of the central tenets of economic thinking, whether that's shareholder value and, and maximization, whether that's the kind of discount rates in economics, those are some of the really fundamental barriers to why we can't get a broader spectrum of low carbon projects away. And that revolution is happening at the margins, it's happening in donut economics, it's happening in the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, where those things are probably quite radical today, but actually in five to 10 years, they will look back and we go, oh, thank God they were there. Because if we didn't have them, we would have been in trouble. Kit, on, on that point, how do we start to bring in some of that sort of fringe thinking around delivering low carbon versus high carbon by bringing in systems thinking place-based? So, Alan, in, in this report from McDonald for the Institute of Civil Engineers, there's an interesting table, which is a number of recommendations, 12 all told. Uh, and the responsibilities fall to a wide range of actors, Scottish government, local authorities, UK government, industry. What I just wanted to ask, I think, each of you was, but if there's one key action that could be taken to really encourage low carbon infrastructure to and to bring these projects into the pipeline, what would the action be and who would be largely responsible for this? I mean, I appreciate it's everything, it always is, but if there's just one that we could pick off the shelf, what might it be? It's a route map because the policy has been set, uh, you know, as everyone says, the technologies are there, but I don't think we've all got a clear idea of what the route map is to get there and the development of a route map where everyone could see their role, their place, I think would be a big advantage. Right, that That's very helpful. Sarah? For me, there, there, there's a couple of things there. Is one, it's about the decisions or that we are making as as a country. So when we're making decisions about infrastructure investment, those decisions need to be based on 
the, the project's contribution to net zero and biodiversity. And, and I suppose the other thing that I would add to that is that actually, let's think about how we regulate and how we purchase things. You know, big client bodies and government is one have enormous power to change behaviours simply by asking for what they procure. So if you actually look at the recent uh, offshore wind around the seabed leasing for offshore wind in Scotland that was that was done by the Crown Estate, it was very interesting the types of outcome that they were asking potential bidders to demonstrate. So actually they were asking uh, those organisations interested in developing the, the seabed and in developing floating wind how they were going to contribute beyond that against a broader range of outcomes, the types of things that, that Kit's talking around. So, you know, I think that that is going to be the way forward and we're going to see that in things like levelling up. We're going to see that in the new CAP. Uh, Organisations, if they are going to be in any kind of receipt of public funding, uh, are going to need to be demonstrating that they're delivering against a range of different outcomes. Great. And Kit? Sorry. Hit the mute button there. Typical, isn't it? Somebody's always got to do it on a podcast. <laughs> um, so I would, I would pick something about ambition and framing. Where we are, we see lots of really good projects coming forward, but there's not enough of them coming forward at the speed that they need mm. to come forward at to meet that pathway to 2045. The decarbonisation of the transport sector and the built environment are the two biggest challenges that we're going to face in a generation. And the policy framework is not quite quite there. The targets are definitely there. You know, so the direction is set, but we're not at the place where the projects are, are there at the right pace and, and scale. You know, in the city region, we've started to look at what it would look like to retrofit, you know, 400,000 homes to EPC grade C over the next decade. And we understand how big that challenge is, but we've still got a massive piece of work to do to get from A to B of, right, well, that's what needs to be done. So how do we make that, that happen? And I think it, it's challenging. It's a bit like Ukraine. You know, actually what we're seeing is people having to face a challenge that this, that hasn't really had to be faced in a generation. You know, and how do we respond to this? And there are multiple pathways to it. And you can either take the kind of quite myopic view of we'll do incremental change, you know, and we'll keep pushing ahead. Or you can take the slightly more systems thinking, which is, you know, if you look at the EU's plan that they, they published around Repower EU, it's sort of saying, actually, to deal with the very short term challenges, we take a longer term view and we set the pathway for net zero. And in doing so, we achieve things like energy security and, you know, and reducing foreign influence and all these other kind of things. So I think for me, it's about really anchoring what we have to do in that ambition and then translating that through into the project delivery. It's a really hard nut to crack. And I think particularly this topic, a lot of the conversation focuses on what those large organizations or what kind of our, our government, be it national or local government, might be doing. But our podcast is Local Zero and it's very much focused on local climate action and what people can do moving forward in their lives to help address some of these big challenges. So we try and, and ground our conversation in that as we move to the end of the show. There's a broad range of things, I guess, that we could be talking about here because we could be acting as consumers. We have purchasing power. We could be acting as citizens and holding up civic responsibilities, or we could be acting as communities. So there's a whole different range of ways in which we could act. But I guess what I'd like to close our discussion around is thinking in this grand scale of shifting towards low carbon infrastructure, 
What is it that people could be doing to support this transition? How could people get involved today, tomorrow, in the next year? I mean, there are so many things that we as individuals uh, can do and, and we largely know what they are. It's about our choices in terms of how we consume um, uh, for those of us that are able to make uh, those kind of choices. I mean, that's another another issue that we really do need to flag up. And this, you know, the focus on the energy prices in the last couple of days will have a heck of a lot of people thinking. So those those who can... Uh, we'll suddenly be now thinking about that, oh, that air source heat pump project that we were thinking about that didn't look like it stacked up. Well, it might be looking a wee bit more like it stacks up now, given the, the kind of energy price hike. But that's for those who are committed and have the capital. And so those are the, those are the, the, the better off amongst us that can kind of make those. Those are almost feel like luxury choices. But, you know, I'm not driving a 4 by 4 to Waitrose and buying... Um, produce that's uh, you know air freighted halfway across the world so your Nicaraguan frozen prawns and you know these are the kind of differences that we can make as a consumer but actually it's not the the people who have the biggest carbon footprint are actually the ones that are able to make the most changes if they so choose but we need to we need to somehow um, exert a bit more pressure on them and a heck of a lot more for support for those people um, who are not contributing to the problem because they simply can't afford to have a car uh, and they, they simply can't afford to think about retrofitting their housing or so on. So we really have to to help people that are in uh, dealing with fuel poverty. Okay. And Kit, what, what can the average person, average community do to try and encourage low carbon infrastructure? Sarah talked quite quite nicely about the sort of the role of the individual as a consumer. I think there's a really big spectrum though. The other really interesting place to be is in community energy, where it's much better on the on the other end of the spectrum, where you you know community groups and individuals are coming together to actually buy and build infrastructure themselves. Full disclosure, I did that in my local community, and it was both really stressful and really great at the same time. Now, you know, the hairline's received a little bit more than it used to, um, and I, I attribute that to putting some solar on our local school. Um, yeah, well, you, you do have to, so I think there's a bit of that. I, I think the other point, though, around facilitating consumer power around around low carbon infrastructure or not consumer power citizen power i think there's one thing is about telling us that you want it you know there's a, that we forget how powerful direct action is and ukraine as i've been watching it the last few days reminds of, of that where you've had citizens literally out in front of tanks saying no we don't want this it reminds you that people have the power to demand a huge amount of change. And I think the last point I would say is it's commensurate on us as, as local but large organisations to facilitate better ways of getting citizens involved. If you look at Barcelona, Barcelona's done this amazing project where they've set up a stakeholder platform where you know citizens can suggest policy changes and the council will involve them in that and then evaluate those ideas and come back. And we did something similar as a council with a COP26 citizens assembly where we hosted over a number of weekends, you know, we had citizens around the table and we talked to them about some of the key issues facing the city and the decarbonisation that we have to go on. They developed recommendations. It was taken on board by the city council and we're now, we either have responses in place or we, we are developing those responses. We have to do much more of that as well, you know, because I think people want to do this because justice is also about participation. If we want a just and equitable transition, then the people who are going to be affected the most have to be given a voice in that journey as well. So it, it's, it's on us as well to open that process up to people. Thank you, Kit. 
Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Sarah. A fascinating discussion. Uh, we've learned a lot there. So I think we'll wrap up there. We're, we're out of time. To our listeners, you've been listening to Local Zero. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the pod. Follow us. You'll find us at all the usual places. You might get your podcast. Just search for Local Zero. You can also listen directly at our website, localzeropod.com. And finally, you can find us on Twitter at Local Zero Pod. If you want to share some longer thoughts, feelings, do reach out to us via email at localzeropod at gmail.com. But until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Produced by Bespoken Media.